Hello and welcome to episode 105 of Beekeeping at Five Apple Farm. This is Lee. I am so glad you've joined me today. I'm so glad for all the folks who didn't give up on me in my rough podcasting year. It just means the world to me. This is episode 105. So today I want to talk to you about some good news things. One is the results of our local black jar honey contest. Can I tell you about that? Then I'm going to tell you about how cool it is to have a black jar contest and how you might want to consider that for your own club fundraising and fun and community involvement. Then I'm going to tell you just some stuff that's going on around here in the bee yard and on the farm. And finally, the content of this podcast is going to be about this amazing substance by a company that is going to be called Optera, and it's two researchers from a North Carolina university. And I'm going to tell you about that exciting stuff that they have developed that will make selecting for hygienic bees so much easier. And I I think it's really going to make a difference in the, the queen quality in particular that you're going to be able to get in the future. So I'll tell you about that. Let me apologize for my voice today. I have allergies. I have a lot of allergies. It is so dry here this fall. The leaf dust is just everywhere. And we live on a dirt road. So man, the cars going by with the dust and the leaf mold, and then just the leaf dried, whatever, whatever it is that's allergenic about a forest full of dry leaves. Hard to good sound, sound good on the radio if you can't breathe through your nose, <laughs> but I'm going to do my best. All right. This is a delightful thing that I'm going to announce. I'm going to read from the Facebook post of our local Tocane Beekeepers Association. Congratulations to the winners of the sixth Mayland Black Jar Honey Contest. First place was Ed Googe of Blue Rock Apiary with a summer wildflower honey. Second place went to Ann and Jim Coomber of Happy Apple Bees in Burnsville with a light summer wildflower entry. Third place was a tie between Ed Gooch's second entry, a late summer sourwood blend, and Knox Petrucci and Allison Wisely of Hearts Relief Apiary in Yancey County. A wonderful turnout of more than 100 honey lovers at Home Place Beer Company and more than 33 judges casting their blind taste tests. Money raised will be used by the Tocane Beekeepers to support volunteer education and outreach to schools and civic clubs to improve understanding of the importance of honeybees and other pollinators. Special thanks to Homeplace for hosting us. They then go on with a long list of the also-rans, and I'm in the list of the also-rans, didn't win a thing, <laughs> had a strategy that didn't work. So let me tell you my strategy. It it has worked for another beekeeper. I think, if I remember correctly, it worked for my beekeeper friend, Michelle, one year that she entered I could, I could be messing up this story, so Michelle, give me a call if I'm messing this up. But I believe she entered a goldenrod honey, which is a very pungent and unique and odd honey to enter in a in a contest, in a taste contest, and ended up winning or placing, I can't remember. So for this year, I knew there were going to be a ton of entries for two reasons. One is our club has grown tremendously. We have a lot of beekeepers. I am so impressed with the work that our club officers have put in. I'm so grateful to be in a community with a with a growing 
thriving club like this of, I will say, of every kind of different beekeeper and all ages. It's really thrilling. But anyway, so my strategy in this crowded field that because of the ton of beekeepers that we now have in our three county area, that's uh, Avery, Mitchell, and Yancey counties of North Carolina. Also, the club this year, the organizers of this year's contest decided to allow people to enter a second entry, but you had to to pay $15 to, to enter that one. So it created a lot of honeys to taste. And given that field, I thought, okay, what if we enter our most distinct and unusual tasting honey from this year. So I had a honey that I'm pretty sure came from early, early spring. It it was fascinating because it had a very distinct, unusual flavor. And then it also had this after note. And the after note, I personally wasn't too fond of. But some of the folks that tried it out when we were talking about this said, well, we're not surprised that you're not fond of it because the aftertaste is like scotch and you don't like scotch. We thought that the angle of doing a really unusual honey might make it stand out in that in that field of, uh, I think, 16 entries. Oh, well, it didn't work. Unfortunately, I don't, I don't know how many votes I wasn't able to attend and I don't know how many votes the honey got. So it, it may have just turned everybody off because they're like, that's a weird taste in honey. But I, I think it was dandelion honey. I noticed that part of that particular bucket was part of the bucket had a little crystallization going on. And I believe I've read that dandelion honey crystallizes very quickly, but it had this really bright, distinct, unusual flavor that has grown on me. We gave that a shot. It didn't work, (laughs) but it was fun. And I have to say, the winners could not be better people. Now, I don't know the couple that was uh, tied with Ed for third. I don't know those folks. Maybe I'll meet them at the B Club meeting tonight. But Ed Googe is an absolute treasure in both our community and our local B Club. He is um, he's almost flunking retirement because he's working so hard. He, he will tell you this. He is dedicating himself, his remaining years, he says, to helping the community better understand bees and most of all in helping younger people take up bees. I believe his first exposure to bees was as a very young man. It never left him. So decades later, when he had the chance to take up bees, I think he was living out west. And so he did for a while and then got busy with life, didn't do him. And now in his retirement, he's come back around and he is absolutely knocking it out of the park. He is teaching, mentoring. He's an officer in our bee club, just a complete joy to have in our community. So bravo, Ed. It is so well-deserved. And in this contest, I can say the exact same thing that the second place winner, Anne and Jim, they are another treasure in our community. See, I can just talk about people because they're not here to to stop me. Talk about another treasure. Anne might be one of the most brilliant and accomplished absolute beginners that I have ever talked to. I have rarely met a person who has put so much research and study and practice into her, I think her first year, first full year of beekeeping. She is also a collaborator with her husband, Jim, who's a retired contractor, and he is super, super great at building bee equipment. So that's a, that's quite the wonderful team there. 
and they are into it. So they may have started with just a couple of hives, but I do not know how many they have now. They have so many hives and they are cared for exquisitely. So bravo. I cannot think of better people to win our contest. So about the black jar contest, this is a cool thing. The first time I ran across mention of it is the international black jar contest, which happens to happen in Asheville, which is just about an hour and change from where I am. And it is an international contest that any beekeeper with an entry fee can, can enter. They do it once a year. It is multi-levels. They have so many entries that they divide them up into categories. So there's like international categories, there's local club categories, there's an entire category of its own for sourwood. There's a category of entries from the Southeast, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a giant, it's a giant contest and they do multiple rounds. And so if you win in your category, then you advance to the finals, which if how it used to be, I haven't looked this year, but how it used to be is they would kind of get celebrity judges, you know, local celebrity judges, people, people know and chefs and that type stuff to, for the, so for maybe they get it down to eight finalists and then they do all the tasting. And let me tell you, if I'm not mistaken, the prize, the top prize for that contest is $10,000, or at least it was one year. You might want to check that out. That's the International Black Jar Honey Contest, and it is based in Asheville, North Carolina. You might want to enter. The proceeds from that contest go to a research project that a small group in in Asheville is doing. But a black jar is very different from the honey contest like at a state fair or whatever. A black jar is strictly by taste. And to accomplish that, the jar of honey is completely covered. In our club, we use these little velvet cloth cloth velvet bags that fit around a one pound queen line jar. So you're required to enter the contest with a one pound queen line. And then part of your entry is you have to do a second jar and that's a donation to the club. And at the contest, they auction off gift baskets and that type thing. But anyway, a black jar, because it covers the honey, you can't, your eyes won't, won't help you. A lot of people, if you put honeys out in front of them, they will just visually gravitate toward whatever the lightest color honey is. Because people, you know, people buy a lot of commercial, allegedly clover honey from the grocery store. Who knows what it, what it really is. And so they're used to that light, golden, kind of thin, runny honey that that's like this really generic taste and color that people imprint on. What is amazing is if you cover the jar, then people will begin to choose their favorite honey based on taste. And I think this is really important because when back when I used to organize the contest, I cannot tell you how many people, because we, we'd send out publicity to the whole community. What I heard people say over and over was, I had no idea honeys could taste so different. And keep in mind, these are honeys from the same neck of the woods. I mean, these three counties, almost identical in terms of their, their ecosystems. Even in that small area, you can get such a vast array of tastes. So a black jar contest, I think, is a great way for a club by reaching out to the community, a way to help people understand how completely different honey's taste depending on the hives they came from, the microclimate of that apiary, the particulars of that 
year, what bloomed a lot, what didn't bloom at all. And the mixes every single year, even in the same apiary from month to month, you can get a completely different taste. I mean, it's just like wine. It is everyone tastes very, very different. So in a black jar, essentially you get your members to contribute, for example, the two jars of honey. So you get them to contribute one jar for the contest. It's important that all the jars be identical. So our club requires you to either submit your honey in a glass one pound queen line, or if you don't have that, like if you just have a pint jar or a quart or whatever, they will pour it into a queen line jar so that all the jars look identical. So there's no way. Then you have to uh, plan your event and do lots of publicity. And, and basically you're going to, people can come for free. I mean, that's how we've always done it. And it, it a local cafe or restaurant, or in our case, uh, we're, we did it at the brewery the last couple of years. So you get everyone to come out, you tell all the beekeepers to bring all their friends, and then you all get them there and you show them all those beautiful magic honey jars under those, in those little black cloth velvet bags. And then you provide some type of taster stick. So something like a coffee stirrer or something like that. In the past, we consulted with a chef of what's the perfect thing to to clear your palate. And really, it's just like really plain crackers of some kind and water is the perfect thing to, to clear your palate so that you can taste again. And even then, in the past, with even only half that many entries, I would have to like taste one or two and then wander off, eat some salty snacks and then, and then come back. So, so you, you dip a taster stick into the jar, taste it, and then you discard that stick. So it's really important to have well-marked clean sticks and then a discard jar that nobody can reach into because you don't want that happening. And then usually you have some type of kind of table monitor to keep people on track using the, the clean dipper sticks and then no double dipping. How we used to do that is we'd put an additional container, usually it was like a little jar or something, beside the entry and as part of their judging packet, you know, so they'll get their little information sheet, then they get a token that they're going to drop that one token into the jar beside the honey that they want to win. So you can see how this is fun. And then around the room, at least in the past, there were tables set up with uh, gift baskets assembled from the club members. And that could be anything from uh, cute lalas that the club has bought for those to other members making and contributing baskets. And then the, the donation jar of honey that you gave goes in those. So people can pick and choose and do a silent auction type thing of the baskets. So you can see how this is a fun night. It raises great money for your bee club. And to me, very importantly, it helps teach your community how unique and special local honey is. And also they develop their favorites. So for example, um, let's say you voted for one that didn't turn out to be the winner, but it was your favorite one. When the little jar covers come off at the end of the night, you can see what your favorite honey, who made your favorite honey. And so now that apiary has a new customer that says, oh gosh, this, this beekeeper makes my very favorite honey and they will seek out that beekeeper. So I think it is a, a wonderful event and I'm so glad that our, our club is still doing that. And every year it seems like more people come and get to, in, to enjoy that. So consider that if your club is looking for a new and distinct way to raise funds and to raise awareness. So next, around here, 
around here this week. Pretty uneventful because all the hives are pretty much settled in for the winter. I realized last podcast that I I wanted to clarify one thing because I was talking a lot about, you know, all the little fiddling that I do with the late summer nukes to put them over big hives for the winter and various fiddling that I do. But I realized that made it sound like, to to my ear, it made it sound like I do that to all the hives when that's not true because I realized my, my yards are pretty much... The hives in them come in two categories. There's the big bubbas and there's the little babies. And there's not really any in between because I've got the the big bubbas that were usually made off of early spring splits. And so they've had all season to to go into to big bubbas and they're often the honey hives. So once their health and weight checks are complete, then they're good to go for the winter. They're, they'll probably be, uh, be okay. If, if our weather is awful, if we're going to have a really cold winter, then sometimes I do insulate even the, the larger hives because I've had such good results with it. And on the topic of insulation, which I'm going to a meeting, tonight's club meeting is about that. So next episode, I'll be talking to you more about that. What I have noticed, and this is not scientific, this is just anecdotal. I've just noticed that everyone who really tries it doesn't seem to go back to not insulating. And I mean, that's probably not true of everyone, but if you are a small time beekeeper and have few enough hives that you can manage the actual insulation of them, I think the survival rates are are much better. And I'll talk a lot more about that in upcoming episodes. So I just wanted to clarify that all the little fiddly stuff that I've been doing with those small hives, that those are the the late summer nukes that that are, are tiny and that I can take the time to try to set them up and to get them through winter. For them, obviously, because they are little hives and they are in the same yard with the big bubba hives, their entrances I keep very small. So they have very tiny little entrance. You know, it's like a 2B wide at the most uh, entrance for their own safety in terms of robbing. But this week, I have had a a brand new problem, (laughs) and that is robbing of pretty big hives. But let me tell you the strategy of those robber bees. Because I use eight frame mediums, the bigger hives, the ones that were just really loaded and that I didn't, wasn't able to compress as much, or I just left them really big, they get tall and skinny because they are the eight frame. With a lot of those, I still had their top entrances open. They had the little top entrance. I still had it open because there were so many bees coming and going that I thought they needed it. Well, so some clever thieving bees figured out that those tall skinny hives, the cluster of bees on the cold nights, the cluster is down toward the bottom of that stack. And so what they were doing is they were basically, before it got too warm, I've I've got a lot of bees that really fly in in cool temperatures, they would go and they would hit that top entrance and they would start a robbing frenzy. Eventually that hive would pull itself together and get up there and fend it off, but it was definitely causing a lot of, of stress. So it took me a second to figure out what was going on because again, those are big hives and I'm it just didn't compute in my mind that I, I know they have a good cluster. I know they have a good population. You know, what's happening here? But that happened on two hives. One of them, I actually have com- some concerns. I've got to figure out a way to look at them and see if they are okay, to see if they weren't robbed out so badly that I'm going to have to readjust them and somehow manage to do that without setting off the robbing frenzy. 
Robbing is so awful. It's it's the one quality of the bees that I really, really don't like. <laughs> I mean, I see why it's useful to them because if they can rob somebody else's honey, then that's honey they don't have to collect. But I really dislike that personality trait. I haven't seen too much of it uh, going on on the larger hives, but in this one little yard I have kind of by the pond, that's where this happened. And what I think happens is if they manage to be successful at robbing, then they just all become little hellions and recruit everybody from whatever big bubba hive they're coming from. I tried to pinpoint who the offenders were, but I couldn't really tell. Then there's a, a giant mass of bees attacking an, another hive, and it, it becomes a huge mess, stressful, can be deadly. If they rob out enough, then even if the little cluster manages to survive, then they're going to they're, they're gonna starve to death. So I've got one that I'm actually concerned about that I've got to figure out um, how hard they were hit. And then the other one, I, I think they're going to be okay now that the beekeeper the beekeeper in question went and put hardware cloth, a little eighth inch bee hardware cloth over the top entrance. So they could, we're still having warm enough days that I, that I'm allowing them that, that ventilation, but nobody can go in that top entrance and start causing trouble up there at the top when most of the bees are down at the bottom of that tall, skinny stack, at least when the weather is cool. So interestingly, knocking on wood here. The the little tiny nukes have been fine because so far because they have those little tiny entrances that they protect and are able to protect. But it was that that robbing thing was a strange occurrence. And actually how I noticed is I have an area it's kind of like a pole barn. It's a peculiarity of the, the way the farmhouse is built, but it is um sort of a covered outdoor thing, but it doesn't ha- it doesn't have walls. And I have equipment stacked junkily. It's one of those areas that you try not to let guests walk around that area because it's a big junk pile, you know, unless you're a beekeeper and you're like, oh, look at all this treasure. I've noticed this signal that I should be concerned that there's robbing going on somewhere when after having no problem, I don't put any hive parts that have any honey or anything that they would want to get in there and, you know, in this area and rob about. But there are uh, boxes with comb that I'm cleaning up. It's dry comb that I'm cleaning up. If I walk out there, I see bees in that area just sniffing around everywhere. Then I become very concerned because they do that in the fall. Once the the flow really stops, you know, they'll come sniff around everywhere looking for everything. That's what fall bees do. But if they haven't been there and then all of a sudden they appear, and I can actually see this out a window. I can see if there's bees in this area. And if I see that, I'm like, mm, somebody is getting the robbing thing going because you may have unfortunately found this out in your yard that once the robbers are successful, then they just become a gang that's intent on knocking off whatever hive they can can do next. And as a result, they are sniffing around. And that is a behavior for beginners Bees are sniffing another hive, like going around all the seams between the boxes, around the back of the hive, going underneath the screen, bottom board, you know, sniffing. Then you know they're they're looking for a way in to potentially rob. And another detail is that if there's a robbing frenzy going on, then but you have all these bees trying to find 
the the place they're looting. The B dances to describe direction only happen if the lo- if the target is a certain amount of distance away. So, for example, if my bees had decided to rob one of my neighbors, <laughs> you know, that's like under I don't know the exact amount of space, but if it's under X hundred yards or whatever, then the the dance that the bees do to communicate to their companions where they should be going is just, I think it's called a circle dance, but it's the most generic. And it, and basically it's kind of like over there. It's close and it's over there. And there's not a lot of specifics. Whereas the B dance for locations further than that area contain actual distance and directional information. So the effect of that is if they start robbing in the same apiary, and this is an apiary that's just kind of on the other side of the pond from, e- from each other, then it's a very gender- general directions. It's like it's over there. What happens is the the would-be robber bees who are trying to join the badness, they just have to go out and basically kind of sniff around. And you'll see them. They just kind of go out in bigger circles sniffing around. So a lot of them end up anywhere you have bee equipment because they're like, hey, is this it? And then they'll eventually, unfortunately, find the hive that's being attacked. Robbing has been a part of my week. I hate that. I do not like the robbing, but at least I I got those fixed up. I got the top entrance covered. And on both of those, I did the little homemade robbing screens on the lower entrance just to give them some time to regroup. One of them that seems to have worked beautifully. And then the other one, I am concerned for their viability after this event. And so I'll have to have to go, go check that. And then the, in other weirdness here at the farm, so as the leaves are coming off the trees, the the back room in our house looks out onto a ridge that's on the other side of a creek. So it's it's high up and there are very tall trees on that ridge. At the very top of one of the very tallest trees on that ridge, there is probably a swarm, uh, uh, was probably one of the swarms that I lost, who decided to build out in the open. So they are on the underneath of a large branch at the top of this giant tree, and they've built comb. And now that the leaves are off, I can see it. I, I was standing there and going, what is that? And so I got the binoculars. Sure enough, it is a colony. There's probably six or eight sheets of comb. The side, the whole thing is easily the size of a basketball, maybe larger, and it is just out in the open. That is both amazing and weird and also kind of sad and depressing because they won't make it. And on one hand, it's probably good that (laughs) any genetics that think they can live outdoors in this area, it's probably good that those genetics are, are weeded out. But it is just the oddest thing I've ever seen. And I have a view of it right out window if I mean, I can see that it's there, and if you pick up binoculars, you can see that it's it, they're still active. They're big enough. I mean, they've gone through multiple nights in the in the 20s. There they are, still going. If they are the robbers, I just want to say, then I will not be sorry to see them go. <laughs> if we have a polar vortex, because who, whoever it is attacking the hives, they're they're pretty rough. But that's the weirdest thing to happen this year, I do believe, with the bees anyway. Well, I've run on so long, I think I'm going to divide this into two. And so I'm going to tell you about this little article that I got offline um, that was about the researchers that have created a product. So what happened was, I believe it was month before last at the Bee Club, I saw the in the invitation email, they said that it was a, a part of this research group was coming with a substance that they have in that they've created that should make it easier to select 
hygienic bees and that this substance would be available to the everyday beekeeper. Well, I was instantly very interested because if you know about selecting for hygienic bees, it is not easy. It is not easy at all. In the past, the methods that I'm familiar with, commercial queen rearers who are doing this type of selection, and there are not many of those that I can tell, so they either have to use uh, dry ice or liquid nitrogen to kill a patch of brood on a frame. So they put that cold, that super cold stuff over a marked area of sealed brood comb. And then they have to go back like in 24 hours or something like that and count how many of those cells that, you know, had now dead brood in them were cleaned out by the bees. And that is one of the ways that you can document which colonies are the most hygienic. And it is a quality in the bees, it is a skill to be able to sniff out what's going on under the cappings. Because, you know, varroa reproduces under the cappings. And so if the varroa have, for example, uh, killed the brood and that brood is dead, or or the brood's dead from anything, a hygienic bee will go in, open that, haul out the, the dead larva and throw it out the, the door. And so you can tell if if on the hives that they do that freezing and then they go back in a set amount of time, if you're evaluating a hundred hives side by side, it's very easy to, well, <laughs> easy in the that last part, it's very easy to see who is the most hygienic, who has cleaned out the most brood. Now there is the caveat that you hygienic behavior is something that in breeding bees, you want some, but you don't want too much. There are actually bees that are so hygienic and so OCD that if they have any questions about the brood, they will yank them out. And as you can imagine, that doesn't allow you to build up a decent bee population. So that trait is kind of, is kind of interesting, but on a backyard level, that's pretty much impossible to do. I mean, yeah, you could do it if you happen to have a, a liquid nitrogen or, or dry acid hand and just have lots of time and lots of hands to do all that work. An even more laborious way to pick out hygienic bees, once it was realized that a different aspect of that hygienic behavior is actually uncapping and recapping brood. And this is even more fascinating so there are certain types of bees, it's a trait in some bees, that if they know that there are mites or they suspect that there are reproducing mites under that cap, they will actually remove the cap. But what's different is they don't haul out all the larvae because just by removing that cap, from what I understand, it affects the humidity or maybe the temperature or combination of the two enough to mess up the varroa that's reproducing. Once they have done that, then they recap and the only way you can tell that was through this laborious process that poor grad students would have to do where they would have to take caps off brood, if you can imagine. And you can tell from the underside of the cap if it is the original cap or if it's been taken off and replaced by the color of the wax under a microscope. So talk about laborious. That one is important because it is a variation on the hygienic behavior that that is important. But for the backyard beekeeper... All of those things are not easy, and there are very few people with the number of hives and the setup. Well, if you're a backyard beekeeper and you're not raising queens that are going to make you a bunch more money if you can sell them as hygienic, 
And believe me, there are so many ads in the bee magazines for like hygienic queens. But I noticed, you know, they don't talk about how do they know they're hygienic? You know, what method do they use? How hard do they select? All, all that stuff. It's it's kind of gray area. It's kind of like seeing natural on the, the label of something. And you're like, what does that mean in this context? There was a article I read years ago, which is kind of fascinating. And so I, I'm, I might be butchering some of the details, but this is the gist. And that was that in some area, I think it was either a part of Italy, maybe an island off Italy or Greece or something like that. But I believe it was definitely an island or a particular region that had these phenomenally hygienic bees. And come to find out, it had been a truism among the beekeepers there that they liked the bottom boards. They had the solid bottom boards. They liked a clean bottom board. And that was just culturally something in the beekeeping milieu of that area that if if you had a, a hive that looked pretty good, but they had a messy bottom board with lots of stuff left on there versus a good hive that had a perfectly pristine, clean bottom board, they would select the bees that did the clean bottom board. And it turned out that that was associated with hygienic behavior. Basically, these were like super clean freak OCD bees, and that was connected. And so on just a farmer level selection, they had ended up over the decades and decades, and who knows how long they'd been doing this. Those are some old places. They had inadvertently selected for also hygienic bees in the sense of Varroa. So that's the gist of the story, which I found pretty fascinating. But you can see what a slow and hit and miss approach it is. And also you can see how the backyard beekeeper or the small, small level queen rearer, these are just things that are really hard. And if you're a small operation and you're just trying to get as many queens out there as people want to buy because people are, you know, demanding queens, then a lot of backyard beekeepers don't have the expertise to ask the questions. How do you select for hygienic? Why are you calling these hygienic? You know, what kind of mating situation are your bees in that they are going to keep that hygienic? Are, do you have the number of hives that would saturate an area with your genetic pool? Or are your hygienic virgin queens going out to mate with just the grab bag of whoever is in the neighborhood? So it's been something that's very hard for a small operation to do. And frankly, I, the large operations, I just don't even know if they do it because in the United States, at least, our dependence has just been on the chemical treatments as the the solution. I mean, it's only, it's really only to my eye taking off now in anything except just a um, a few odd beekeepers on the on the side. But in terms of on a commercial level, it only seems now that there seems to be this larger scale interest because even though the commercial operations obviously treat, but treatment is expensive, um, not just the chemical, but also the human power to apply it to the hives. So if you have a type of bee that requires half the treatment that your old type of bees did to survive and thrive, well, then that's a big deal. And so you would want to get hygienic queens just to save you money on chemicals and manpower, not just because they are hygienic. So imagine my delight when the invitation of the bee club said that these researchers had come up with a spray, a liquid spray that you could spray on a brood comb 
in a particular way. And then within a matter of hours, you could look at that area and then tell what your most hygienic hives are. This just blew my mind. I loved it because it's some type of, I'm assuming some type of pheromone spray that these researchers from a North Carolina university uh, developed. It gives, it should give a hygienic bee the signal to clean out that area. Now, and again, the, the, the detail being, I don't know how specific that pheromone is and we'll look forward to learning it of whether it's just the general distressed brood smell, which would make a hygienic bee clean it out or a dead brood smell, which would make them clean it out. Or if it also somehow gets the bees that just that there's something awry going in there and you might actually have the uncap recap bees. I'm not sure about all the details yet because the, the product's not out yet. They do have the patents on it from what I read. With that intro, next time I'm going to read you the article I found online about this product and the people who invented it, the researchers who developed it, and the team that is going to market it. It's very exciting. Okay, well, I, I ran on too long on the front end, and so I had to shortchange you on that. But I, because I have this article literally printed out here on the podcast desk, then I should be able to get to that fairly soon, Lord willing. So hope you're having a wonderful week. I sure look forward to continuing to learn alongside you as the winter goes by and to hope keep you excited and enthused enough about bees to go deep and stick with it no matter what happens to your bees this winter that to come out in spring determined to have the best bee year yet. And that's my hope for us all. All right. Have a great day and I'll talk to you soon.